Welcome back to season nine of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your guest host, Latia Frazier, and along for the ride will be my ableist sidekick, Josiah Jones. Listen now for honest conversations about disability in the church. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, our guest is Sarah. Hello, everyone. Hey, Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us this season on the podcast. We're talking about disability, disability theology, our own um, kind of stories connected to disability. So here we are. Let's make it a conversation. So can you share with us? Um, because typically, I mean, there are many people who listen, but uh, most folks, I would say, are in the Nazarene tribe, which is most connected Wesleyan reads connected to like uh, Methodist, that kind of thing. But can you tell me what your name is, where you're from, and how do you identify within the disability community? We're starting. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Sarah McKenney. Um, I am my my job is the spiritual support coordinator for Stone Belt Arc. Um, and I live in Bloomington, Indiana. Um, so, and I identify as, um, I'm dyslexic and if I have ADD, um, so, and just for, I guess we can, we'll probably go into this, but we're just for frame of reference. Stone Belt is a service provider agency, a nonprofit service provider agency that supports people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in a variety of different types of support services. Um, and so I uh, I focus on the spiritual support program, grief counseling, that sort of thing. And I am ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA. Right, that's cool. I love that like the states um, agencies are starting to realize the importance of spiritual care is essential to our, our mental health and our well-being. So I love that. Um, the next question was denomination, which you talked about already, and your current professional role. So while you are dating within the PCUS and you don't have a traditional like church pastor role, would you say, at least in your experience, either personally and professionally, that that's common for folks uh, who have a call to ministry that also have a disability? Hmm. Um... I don't, I honestly don't know. Um, I, I know a lot of, so I'm actually within the, um, Presbyterian, I, the Presbyterian Church USA has, um, a, a subgroup of a nonprofit called Presbyterians for Disability Concern. And I will say a lot of the members in that, um, network that, uh, helps to support the denomination in a awareness of disability concerns. Um, most of the people in that group and colleagues that I know who are um, disabled clergy, I would say they are, most of them are actually clergy of congregation. Um, so I am a little bit more rare in the sense of it's an, um, alternative ministry or you know whatever you want to call it i mean i'm a chaplain basically mm -hmm. um so um 
but both people I know are, are still clergy of specific congregations. Which might have much to say about how the PCUSA has a specific group or um, committee that that works with clergy that have disabilities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I I noticed the language you used when referring to yourself and how you identify within the disability community. Um, would you say that you use person first or identity first language and why? Like if there's an explanation for you. I use both. Um, usually depending on what kind of atmosphere or um, uh, space I'm in. Usually when I'm talking to myself, I often do identity first. Um, but if I'm in a more professional role working with a larger um, variety of audience, I will use person first language kind of as a starting point. Um, and then because I also know if I'm working, if I'm talking with a group of people with a mixed audience who are learning the language and learning more about just disability awareness, disability inclusion, disability language, I usually start with first a person first language. Um, and then we kind of go into the nuances of identity first because there is still a mixture of opinion out there um, from people with disabilities themselves of which they prefer. Um, so I kind of start with maybe safe and then, um, and then uh, go into identity first, especially if I know the individual prefers that. Yeah. So just and I talked about this on our, our intro podcast and, and I said the same thing, essentially, like depending on where I'm at and I can switch back and forth. Um, just because like, yes, we are both folks that identify as folks with disabilities, but we also have, you know, lives and things that we like to do that are like outside of talking about disability. Can you tell me some of your interests? And then um, if you would think about it, so it gives you a moment to think about it. I was chatting with, well, we had lots of chats about funny stories um, connected with our disability, right? Like there's always, like there's rarely ever a day that there's not a funny story around like living in this world with a disability. So kind of some of the interests you like outside of your professional work. And then if you can think of a funny story. Well, so um, special interests, I'm a nature gal, so um, and, and so I'm in Bloomington, Indiana, which is South Central Indiana, and the um, the land here is really interesting. It's unique compared to the rest of Indiana, which is predominantly flat. Um, South Central Indiana is very hilly, um, and so uh, and we're completely surrounded by oh I don't know a dozen national and state parks. Um, so I, when I have an opportunity, we, um, I and uh, my husband often will go hiking, walking and exploring, um, through the woods and, and nature. And then we also have like a little boat that we'll take out on, we have a big lake here, um, uh, called Lake Monroe and we'll take our little fishing boat out 
he usually fishes. I usually relax and read a book. <laughs> and Josiah would get along. He lives in, I call it, in the middle of nowhere, literally off grid. I'm like, you have internet? It's amazing. <laughs> it's you, though. It's Most of the time when you want to do a Zoom, my internet's not working. So I'm pretty sure somehow Latia is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, funny story. Funny story. Ah. Uh, I know there's, so the only thing that I can think of off the top of my head, which really isn't a story per se, um, but more just kind of an ongoing joke and an ongoing one reality, but we, we laugh of my family and I laugh about it all the time is, um, and maybe I can explain dyslexia a little bit later, but, um, part of dyslexia in um, not just trouble the you know everybody thinks it's just about difficulty reading um, but it's a whole processing a, a whole way of how our brain process things um, anything from retaining information to also receiving information and getting um, information from our memory part of our brain um, so it is very often um, what my family calls Sarah-isms, uh, where I like to piece two words together and create a new word um, and or say things that are a word that's similar but has a very different meaning, but I use it in the like inaccurate way. Um, but I do a lot of combo words, uh, blending two words together and creating a whole new word. Um, so my my family have the list of Sarah isms that um yeah, phrases or words that I mold together in a new way. <laughs> I love it. We can create our own language, right? Language right. is how it works out. I have a I have a question real quick, if that's all right. Um I'm naturally wanting to say, I might be this, I might be that. I think I have dyslexia. I think I have ADD. And part of it is also because we're about to actually get our child screened, you know, actually get try to look into the diagnosis. Can you help help me understand a little bit? Because um, you see it all over on social media. People chime in with memes about how they're ADHD, how they're this, that, the other. And I mean, whether they have a diagnosis or not doesn't ever seem to be discussed. So two two things, really. One, what did you actually have to go through to understand fully that you were diagnosed with this, that, the other? Um, but then additionally, what is it like to be someone who has these actual disabilities, seeing other people maybe talk about it in maybe a slightly flippant way saying, oh, I think I'm dyslexic. I messed up those numbers in that phone number. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, yeah, maybe I can first start with describing a little bit more about what dyslexia is, because anytime I say it, people are like, oh, yeah, I struggle with reading, too. I'm probably dyslexic. And I'm like, OK, it's more than that. <laughs> uh, um, so really this um the struggle with reading is a secondary or a consequence to the original i don't want to call it issue but the of what was originally going on in the brain um the it's similar a lot of people with dyslexia also have add because they kind of work off of each other um and it does have some similarities to autism as well um but the reaction is different um, so I will in maybe somebody else's brain, um, 
they might be, I'll just use the reading example. They might be reading a book and um, our peripheral vision, um, if you do see, if you, it, it, you might have peripheral vision and as you're reading down um, and scrolling with your eyes down the page, your peripheral vision might pick up on other words. It knows that other words are on the page. Somebody else's brain might will be able to kind of ignore those other words and not pay attention and stay focused on the words that they're actually trying to read. A dyslexic brain is going to not leave that out and might um, insert words that are on the next page over into the sentence that you're reading. Or as you're reading a word, the letters might arrive in your brain in a different order because it gets distracted. Um, there's a lot of information that it's trying to, the brain is trying to, um, our brains receive a lot of information at one time and our brains are constantly having to kind of refocus and weed out what it doesn't want to pay attention to. And people with dyslexia oftentimes have a hard time weeding out the stuff that it doesn't want to pay attention to and oftentimes will throw away things that it does need and use thing and pay attention to things that it doesn't doesn't want to pay attention to um so reading is just one example but this can also happen in conversation or um, if i'm listening to a lecture um, and there's other things that are going on in the room i have to like refocus um and then the second thing is by the time it hits the memory portion of the brain during that journey it can also get sidetracked so i can hear it but then i won't necessarily remember it because it may take a different journey in the brain and not get to the memory portion um and then one more thing on the receiving end if i'm in a conversation with somebody um there's something called recall word recall um so as we're speaking um sometimes it's hard for us to come up with the right word because now we're trying to access the memory portion of the brain to remember that person's name or that information so for example testing was a nightmare um because i'm trying to one anxiety's up pressure's on and so remembering that person's name that i know that i know but i can't access in my brain um so this affected me um pretty early on when i had difficulty reading but i also like flunked every single test um and i couldn't recall any of the information that was being asked of me um so i would constantly test as if i didn't know any of the information um, and that brought lots of different diagnoses. Eventually I had a teacher that, um, knew what dyslexia was. Um, and I went to a private school that specifically taught us how our brains work, how the dyslexic brain works and lots of strategies. Um, so today hasn't gone away, still struggle with it. Um, or still, still, it's still my reality. Um, but I've got lots of tricks. So 
Currently, I'm doing my doctorate, lots of reading, but I'll have my book in my hand, but I'll also be listening to the audio. And then I also take notes in the margins so that I'm actively responding to what is being put into the brain to try and add that active learning um, kind of part. Um, so lots of different strategies. Sounds a little more in depth than what folks are sharing in memes on Facebook about their struggles with ADHD. Yep, and I and I can I could continue because it even comes out socially, um, and and interferes socially, especially in the professional world. As my anxiety goes up, I may not sound very intelligent because the words are just not coming to me, and so I don't end up sounding like a very eloquent speaker, um, especially if I'm standing in front of somebody that's like intimidating or something like that. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I also, which this isn't, but it made me think of a question that you have dyslexia, uh, but another person that has dyslexia doesn't mean that it's going to show up in the same way, right? Can, can we talk a little bit about that? Like, just because we are, uh, labeled for lack of a better word with the same disability doesn't mean it's the same. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there was, so one example of this is um, some people, they might, the things might, do, the, um, well, the dyslexia acts may be different. So for me, um, I don't really word, read words backwards. Um, I do a lot of inserting other words into sentences when I'm reading, but some people will actually not read backwards, not in like a, a willing way. Like they're not just reading backwards, um, but they'll uh, flip-flop words or letters. I did that a lot when I was little. I'd always write my letters in the reverse. Um, I don't do that anymore. But um, so there are some people and some people it's specifically with numbers for whatever reason, numbers are what is the brain struggles to um, kind of piece in order. Um, so, I mean, it it is different. And some people um, have, their, of course, various degrees as well. Um, but I will also say, um, you know, I have some friends who are dyslexic and they were they did not have the kind of early and in, early intervention in the sense that they didn't weren't equipped with a lot of the kind of tools and tricks that I was given and and um and and strategies um and so that really affected um how far they could get in schooling um whereas i I kind of was blessed to have to learn more about how my brain works and what tools I need to help my brain do its thing. Well, and I just want to say, like, it's, uh, I always find it to be a vulnerable thing to talk about. And I think folks don't, I've had so many encounters, I don't know about you, Sarah, but like people will say things like, what happened to you? Or what's wrong with you? Or what do you have? Like, that's an inappropriate question to ask. So when people feel, when people 
led us into the stories. I always find it, you know, a privilege and a sacred space. So thank you for that. Uh, so here's the question, the magic pill question. No. So however you want to answer that, if you were given a magic pill that would make it so that you no longer had dyslexia and, and whatever other disabilities, or somebody, because this is what typically happens in a lot of churches, um, if there was an altar call or somebody who wanted to pray for you to pray your disability away, would you do it? Absolutely not. Okay. Can you explain that? And like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I will say I kind of talked about what dyslexia, how the brain, um, the inner works thing, inner workings of processing um, in the brain. Uh, what I didn't mention is a lot, uh, which I, I, I'm not going to say are negatives. That's just the way my brain processes information. Um, that can be more of a challenge if I'm trying to read a whole book. Um, my brain gets tired very quickly, and so I have to, I, I can only read in short stints. Um, now, the positives of dyslexia are that we tend to be people who are more um, in tune with the other, with another person. So we tend to be much more empathizers um, uh, and have a, an ability to kind of tune into uh, another person in lots of nonverbal ways as well. Um, so uh, I, and that has been a huge blessing um, in that, um, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I feel like I do, do, I do have a gift of just being able to tune into another person, uh, especially if they're in uh, physically in front of me. That's how my body kind of interacts best. Um, and, uh, but also it also brought just the way I kind of process and see and experience the world. Um, and thankfully, um, I, I just I can't imagine me being me without my dyslexia. Um, I don't think you could piece like imagine piecing that. I've had people say, try to pray my dyslexia away. And I'm like, I no. Um, I prefer not because this is I, I don't even know who I would be without it. Um, it's just a part of how I experience and live in this world. Love it. Yeah, I was talking to Josiah about how I would answer that. Uh, no, mostly, right? And that the 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 mostly part was only because of the social struggles I have, uh, but because of a society that doesn't make room for folks with disabilities, not because I don't like the way my body is or how I exist in the world. So. Well, and that's a good because I'm I don't want to say that it's always been roses. There has been many tears shed of frustration with my brain and frustration with, um, yeah, <laughs> um, how I learn, how I test, um, 
always having to test in a separate room, asking for more time, having that conversation with the professors that I'm special and I need to, and I, but I'm not actually saying please don't use special, um, but that I'm unique. I need to, I need to step away from everybody else and I need to sit in a separate room and that is quiet and have long time, te- you know, extra time to take my test. You know, no, it's not, it's not fun having that conversation with your professor every single time um, and having your professor give you that look of, yeah, prove it. And then having to prove that you have a disability. Um, even in my ordination process, um, I had to take my, in the Presbyterian Church USA, you have to take ordination exams after you graduate seminary. Um, the ordination exams are just for the denomination. Um, those exams were a nightmare for me. Um, and I had to take, eventually, my, I had to take them orally. Um, but that wasn't without uh, a whole committee of, of 200 people voting that it's okay for me to take my ordination exams orally and you know that's it's just not comfortable and it's it it there there are plenty of times where i've you know in that moment we're like if i could just do this like everybody else this would be so much easier yeah I, I share some of that, right? <laughs> and yet, I, I was thinking of a time in seminary where I had to like talk to the professor, and he was like, "No." And, I, and at that moment, I was like, "Wait, what do you mean no? Like, this is not. This is this is what it, it is for me to learn, right?" And so, in having to say, "Okay, that that I have to have that experience," it of feeling over and over and over again, not because I didn't know the material, but because I couldn't get it out in the in the way that, yeah. And so then my thing then was to advocate for myself and say, where is there a way that I can never take that professor again? Like figure out a way that we don't have to do that. So some of the- And things- sometimes having that really uncomfortable prof- uh, conversation with the professor when you're like, Okay, I know I was asking, but by law, you have to. <laughs> and then, like, having to toss that back and be like, okay, now now I'm going to make this really tense and really uncomfortable and tell you, you, you have to. Um, and I asked, what I really meant was trying to do this in, like, a nice, respectful way, but now I have to force you and throw the law at you and that's you know you know you don't want to you don't want to have to be that person and then have that tension between you and your professor <laughs> yeah exactly for the rest of the semester right you know <laughs> or was the, the grade right the power dynamics are not uh fair um a little bit about uh like how your body image uh has been shaped by your disability. So if you want to talk through like your whole lifespan so far, we talked through yesterday uh, that I didn't go to church until close to the, like my preteen teen years. And so when your body image is already like, what, who am I? And 
uh, having that be the first time somebody said to me, like, something is wrong with you. Not like I have a disability, but something is wrong with the person you are because of your disability. So that shaped a little bit of, like, my body image for, for, for a while. Body image. So a few things kind of come to mind, especially when I was younger. Um, I really couldn't sit still. Um, it, I mean, it was really difficult. It was, it kind of felt like it, my body just needed to move. It was unsettled if it was sitting still. It needed to move. And still, that's, I mean, very much, um, I still have a lot of those types of tendencies. I'm always usually like playing with my hands, um, jiggling my foot, um, doing doing something. But as a kid, it was much more big movements, um, really uh, unable to sit still. So from a physical image of myself, um, it was very common. You know, everybody was telling me to sit still. Uh, literally, what's wrong with you? Sit still. Um, uh, and so that one was a part of it. Two, um, I oftentimes look around the room with my eyeballs. Um, my eyes kind of, if I'm talking, my eyes kind of go all over, um, kind of as if I'm trying to search for the words in in the air um, or in my brain. Um so it, um, eye contact doesn't really make me uncomfortable. It's more of uh, I'm trying to find the words. And so my eyes will kind of shift all over the place as if I'm searching my brain for the words that I want to say. Um, and so I also got like a lot of look at me. What are you doing? What's again, what's wrong with you? Um, look at me. Um that one shaped me. Um, the other thing was in school early on, um, I mean, I hung out with other people with disabilities. Um, in, uh, I, I hung out with a lot of the kids that were in then the special ed class, a lot of uh, other children with disabilities. And so that became my self, my safe space. Those peers became, um, the fellow people with disabilities or children with disabilities became my, my safe space and the place that I was comfortable with. Um, and so I do think that that also shaped me and what to a certain degree, even though I was getting fed, there's something wrong with me, with the way I look or the way I'm moving. Um, I also deliberately kind of sought out a new norm for me um, because it was like, well, if I'm, I'm not going to fit into whatever norm you are, you society are going to tell me. So I'm going to try and find my norm. And my norm is with other people who move uh, and, and kind of live in this space in that what society is saying is not normative. Um, and then that created my own norm um, and and comfort level, um, which is why I think I also ended up in the field that I am because I'm now fighting for my peers, the people that I'm um, kind of most comfortable with. <laughs> um, in, in our own uh, community and culture, right? 
beginning yeah. of community culture, which is what minority cultures do when the when the dominant culture says, no, you're for whatever reasons you don't you don't fit in. Right. Uh, can you tell us of a, a poverty experience that you've had in church? I don't know, like if you grew up in the church or you came to that later, um, regarding, you know, being a person with a disability that are positive. Um, so I'll, I'll first start by saying I um, followed the family business, so to speak. <laughs> um, both of my parents are clergy. <laughs> um, both my parents are chaplains. Um, yeah. I retired chaplains, but uh, did their had their career in chaplaincy. My dad was um the host- local hospital chaplain um my whole life and my mom was the hospice chaplain in our town um that in and of itself one just shaped my theology in general um living in that kind of multi-faith um multi-faith spiritual exploration as um and 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 death and grieving um became another norm for me um which i think i that's one of the reasons why i love working in the multi-faith realm um but at church church was always uncomfortable um so like i said before part of dyslexia um, can also show up in the social in a, in the social way um one we can be more add um two especially we tend to be um oral processors um which means that we we tend to talk a lot <laughs> uh, um, and and i was also craving friendship and connection and this then came out as a very awkward um child that a lot of people were turned off by and so i i, I didn't really have friends um and i was oftentimes made fun of and bullied um and this happened at church as well um so the other kids that were my age i never really fit in um but i did fit in with the older population so the older population um which is kind of a joke in my family now because i married a um somebody that's 10 years older and when that happened, my dad was like, yeah, well, you have an old soul. That's who you've always, con- you've always connected with people who you were older, um, who are older than you. Um, but yeah, I, I often connected with the elderly, um, or the older population in the church. Um, the one space that was a consistent, like true sanctuary for me, um, uh, was not as much in our local church. It was at a church camp, um, a Presbyterian camp that is about 45 minutes away from here called Payoka. Um, and camp was a space where I wasn't with kids that knew me at school. I wasn't with kids who knew, knew that I struggled in school. Um, I wasn't with kids who um, you know, heard the teachers being frustrated with me. I was able to be kind of a whole new me, start over at church camp, at camp. 
And that was a space that I looked forward to every year um, and had a big impact. Um, I ended up working there in college and it really heavily shaped my um, faith journey. Um, and that was also a space that consistently I heard God um, and leading the way each each year. I love it. I uh, didn't uh, go to church camp, but I went to camp for kids with disabilities and that mm. was the space where I realized I can do like anything, regardless of what other folks were saying, mm -hmm. which is why I love the documentary Crip Camp because I was like, yes, that's exactly absolutely. So, wrapped in the conversation, you told us both about a negative experience, uh, which was around uh, like your local church, and then also the positive experience of a camp. And I'm wondering, too, can you tell us because there are many, many people with disabilities who have a call to ministry. Can you tell us a little bit about the call of ministry and when you like first sensed that? My call, first of all, I will say it's kind of ever changing, ever shaping, um, which is probably true for everyone. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but um, so I, I, I'm, I'm, it's actually at camp. <laughs> awesome. So every year at camp, there was this time that um, it, it, every week that I went, there was this time early morning, usually early morning, because that was when it was quiet. I'd head down to the lodge before people got there for breakfast, and there's this big porch that like looks out um, over the entire camp in the lake. Um, and that was pretty regularly a space where... Um, I kind of got my direction for the next year by God. Um, not a God, not a voice, but an overwhelming feeling or presence, if that makes sense. Um, uh, there was a clear like message that I was supposed to hear again, not a, not an audible voice, but a very clear, um, thought or, or new direction. And, and sometimes that was like just reaffirming that God loves me and that helped me into my next year um, through school when I would kind of beat down, beat down, beat, I would get beat down again by kids and kind of feel redrained. Re um, but in, in, when I was working for the camp um, that last year, uh, the last year of college, I was working at the camp and I was sitting there and um, again, I got that kind of clear feeling that I needed to go to seminary. I needed to go to, um, I, I needed to be a, a, a clergy. I needed to go into ministry to some, in some way. Um, I kind of ignored it. <laughs> um for about a year um but in that year i ended up working at a local um ymca and worked with um children and adults with disabilities in a few different ways um and in that time in that just one year 
children, adults, parents, for some reason, felt compelled to tell me about their experiences in their faith communities and how they were not welcome. And it then became clear that I was supposed to do something about this. I didn't know what, but I was supposed to go to seminary to do something about all of these stories that I'm hearing, that people are like being compelled to tell me. Um, so I went to seminary. I had several experiences during seminary um, that continued to kind of outline the stepping stones um, that led me forward to the next step. Um, so that way it was kind of a gradual call. Um, and then it just continued to take shape, um, one step at a time as the years progressed. I love it. I had, you know, I'd say like, I knew that I was called in ministry, but I didn't have like, you know, to a church or to, I just knew that like God was calling me to ministry. So, so Sarah, can you tell me again, like, what is disability theology? Like, briefly to you, and like, uh, and then how has that shaped your understanding of God, the church, and is it just for folks with disabilities? How do you think it can shape the the whole church? Yeah. Um... So I guess, so what is disability theology? First, I will say, um, just to start, disability theology can capture lots of different theologies within the disability theology sphere. Um, so not everybody agrees with one another, um, and the theology isn't necessarily the same. The point of disability theology is that you use the lens of disability, um, even though it's a diverse lens, it's through still using the lens of disability, um, people's experience of disability. Um, and then how do you look at who God is, who are we in relationship to God? Um, you know, theology, how do you look at theology? How do you look at scripture through that lens or keeping that lens in mind? Um, so similar to um, feminist theology, again, you're looking through the lens of women <laughs> um, and the experience of women through that lens and looking at scripture, who God is, who are we in relationship to God, so on and so forth. Um, so again, you can have conservative, liberal, all over the place as far as people's overall theology. Um but you can still, you're then adding the lens of disability to um, to look at that. Um, I hope that made sense. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, I, I'm going to answer the question as far as how has disability shaped or has disability theology shaped my own theology. Um, I'll answer that. Um, but also with my experience of um, working alongside people with disabilities as well, um, because like for me, they're very much hand in hand. Um, so there are um, a lot of disability theology. Again, you're looking at the lens of disability, the experience, the diverse experiences of disability. 
um, to look and ask the questions of who is God? Who are we in relationship to God? Who are we in relationship to one another? That sort of thing. Um, a lot of disability theology um, really... I'm actually gonna. I'm gonna actually start with my experience of working alongside people with disabilities first, um, uh, um, because I think that'll that goes directly into the theologians that specifically speak to me, and maybe that can be a way to answer this question. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, in the work that I do, I work alongside people um, with a diverse experience of diverse experiences of intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, and I get to be in conversation and learn how they experience God or who God is to them. Um, and it very quickly, um, this understanding, the theologians that I a lot of times read about in seminary, um, and, you know, for example, me being Presbyterian, you know, John Calvin. Um, but all of those other theologians, um, it, that theology became conflicting with a lot of the people that I was getting to know and working with, um, which I think is also the part of the reason why churches, congregations have a hard time maybe including people with disabilities or knowing how, um, because some of the theology uh, that we read about is telling us that to be in relationship with God, there has to be some sort of cognitive understanding of who God is um, in order to be an, an understanding of this relationship between me and God. Whereas the, a lot of the people that I work with um, they're not necessarily thinking about it in that super intellectual way. They're looking at who God is based on how do they experience God in their life. Um, so that is a perfect example of like active disability theology. Um, so um, do people with intellectual developmental disabilities just not experience God because um they because of their intellectual ability i would say absolutely not um so then what is that how does that then shape our theology um and there are theologians that specifically dive into this um thomas reynolds um uh i'm gonna forget her name uh, molly haslam talks about um that it's not so much the reliance of how we can intellectualize or put into words of who God is and who I am in relationship with God. It's how do we experience God? How do we actually know that God exists? Is it just these fancy words that we piece together in this pretty sentence that we all can agree with? Um, or is it actually about how we relate and are in relationship with one another? And that is how we experience God. Um, so it's piecing apart these um, the, the, these these questions um, of scripture of um, 
of of theology that um and also kind of maybe highlighting some some problematic areas um because there are some theologians that i'm like okay then if you're if that is your logic if this is what you're saying what it means for me to know god then some of my peers will never know god because maybe they don't have that ability to rationalize um god in that fancy or they may not know what that fancy sentence that you just said means <laughs> um they may not be able to say jesus christ is my lord and savior and i'm gonna say that and um i'm gonna say that i know what that means um and i see this you know so when i work with churches i'll deliver i'll see this as an as a as an example of people who say, well, I we can't baptize that person because they don't know what it means to be baptized. Um, or they can't say that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, so they can't be baptized. Disability theology would look at that and go, hmm, <laughs> there there might be a there might be an issue, like how can disability look and shine into that um, and disability theology shine into that um, and and ask some important questions of does faith does a real our relationship with god solely rely on this intellectual capacity to um know who god is whatever that intellectual capacity might be um and and what does it mean to know God in general? Again, is that just reciting a well thought out sentence, or is it about experiencing God's love, forgiveness, and relationship with the people around us? Yes, so the gift to the church as a whole. What might you say to someone who has a disability who? has sensed the call to ministry and then what might you say to a ministry board or committee uh committee um that will encounter this candidate for ministry um so for people with disabilities who are seeking out who are following their call into ministry um I would first say, trust that call. You're getting, you're fit and follow that call. Um, if, if if you feel that is a call from God, then that is your call, um, and 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 keep a hold of that, um, hold on to that, and and let that lead you. Um, the barriers are barriers that us humans have put in place. Um, so to follow the godly call um and and try and keep that voice in your forefront um the other thing that i'd say a little bit more practically um is for people with disabilities to do some research and figure out if your denomination has a disability committee or network that can help um uh, provide resources or have some of those conversations and be of support to you 
when you have to get in front of like that committee or whatever um, to discern. Um, so a lot of people don't know that a lot of denominations have um, committees or networks, um, disability networks or committees that can help um, work with those committees that decide if somebody is ordained or not. Um, so using those resources that are out there, also knowing the rules that are in your denomination. Um, the other thing that I would say is, so what I would say to the committees um, or, or those board members, um, whatever they're called in your denomination, is to think about why, why you are there and what does it mean to actually be called into ministry? Is, is it, again, is it based on somebody saying things in the exact, perfectly eloquent way that you are expecting? Or is it about God's call for them? Um, I do understand that, um, you know, one thing that I had to tell the committee um, that did end up ordaining me was um i'm not asking when i when i told them that i am requesting to take this test orally instead of um written i reminded them i'm not asking for you to make it easier there are different ways to give you the same information um there are different uh ways to access my wisdom or intelligence um and there are different ways to assess that that is what i'm asking um and so for committees to really get to know the person um and and find ways that they can supportively um or uh, i don't again that might be a new word um that might be a sarahism right there um but su support the individual and you know, get get whatever information you need, but also so in a supporting and loving way. Um, that is maybe what I would tell the, that board or committee. Yeah. So what I'm hearing for you that like accommodations are not uh, an easier way, right? Accommodations are uh, things that make the the plain level, right? It's not that we want it easier, but this is the way that you can access the information that is needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. I don't know, maybe that's one of the, um, one of the hopes I have for this season. I'm trying to figure out what my hopes are for this season. Is I, I'm not aware of, and I went through the whole um, process of becoming ordained within the Nazarene Church. I am not aware of it specific a uh, group or committee of people who who specifically support folks with disabilities within the church of the Nazarene as part of my demon I look in our manual and the only mentions of disabilities are um of course that we believe that folks with disabilities are made in the image of God but then the other one where we're like if a pastor were to become disabled, here, here is the way that we can support you with your medical insurance, and here are ways that you can retire, like 
retirement status. So there was no sense of a minister with a disability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, even maybe indicates that, um, that that's almost the expectation is if you become disabled while you are a clergy, here is the way that you can retire uh, with support. Um, so that's almost like an encouragement to retire instead of continue to be a, a minister and be disabled. Um, yeah. So maybe that's one of the wriggles of this podcast is to say, can we reimagine a church where we have a committee or something that is supportive of folks that feel called to ministry that have disabilities? Um, we're about to end, but I'm wanting to know, is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to make sure to say anything you want to plug knowing that this won't be out for a couple of months i can make a plug for my webinars i guess <laughs> yeah. um so yeah i um do a host uh produce produce sounds like such a fancy word i put together i plan um local webinars um, through Stonebelt Arc, um, they cover a variety of different topics. Um, I'm still piecing together this year's, um, but I do um, uh, put on about five webinars, uh, each with different speakers. And um, you can find that out. I'm going to try and give you guys a nice, clean um, website to look up. Um, so it's going to be stonebelt.org backslash spiritual hyphen support. Um, and there you'll be able to see all past webinars for the last couple of years. And then you'll also see the um, this year's webinars will also be posted and advertised as well. All right. Thanks again so much for being willing to be on the podcast and Looking forward to the conversation that will come for your from your episode. So thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your life with us. The Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Latia Frazier. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please be sure to rate, review, or subscribe and visit themillennialpastor.com for more podcasts like it.